This is episode number 721 with Dr. Amira Abbas, quantum computing researcher at the University of Amsterdam. Today's episode is brought to you by Gurobi, the decision intelligence leader, by ODSC, the Open Data Science Conference, and by CloudWolf, the cloud skills platform. Welcome to the Super Data Science Podcast, the most listened to podcast in the data science industry. Each week, we bring you inspiring people and ideas to help you build a successful career in data science. I'm your host, John Crone. Thanks for joining me today. And now, let's make the complex simple. Welcome back to the Super Data Science Podcast. We're extremely fortunate to have the brilliant and eloquent Dr. Amira Abbas on the show today. Amira is a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Amsterdam, as well as QSoft, a world-leading quantum computing research institution that is also in the Netherlands. She was previously on the Google Quantum AI team, and she did quantum ML research at IBM. She holds a PhD in quantum machine learning from the University of KwaZulu-Natal, which is in South Africa, And uh, while she did that, she was a recipient of Google's PhD fellowship. Much of today's episode will be fascinating to anyone interested in how quantum computing is being applied to machine learning. There are a few relatively technical parts of the conversation that might be best suited to folks who already have some familiarity with ML. In this episode, Amira details what quantum computing is, how it's different from the classical computing that dominates the world today, and where quantum computing excels relative to its classical cousin. She fills us in on key terms such as qubits, quantum entanglement, quantum data, and quantum memory. Critically, she fills us in on where quantum machine learning shows promise today as well as where it might in the coming years. She tells us how to get started in quantum ML research, and she provides us with today's leading software libraries for quantum machine learning. All right, you ready for this mind-blowing episode? Let's go. Amira, welcome to the Super Data Science Podcast. How are you doing today? Where in the world are you calling in from? I'm good, thanks. I'm calling in from South Africa, actually. Um, but yeah, thanks for inviting me. Thanks for having me. It's really nice to be here. Nice. And yeah, we do get to enjoy your South African accent, uh, which is <laughs> wonderful. And our audience gets to enjoy my very sick, <laughs> very deep voice. Uh, and we'll probably edit out my hacking coughs, but uh, those are going to be happening in the recording at least. (laughs) Um, So yeah, the show must go on. Um, So we have such amazing topics planned for you today, Amira. I think we're going to jump right into the technical questions because I want to squeeze in as much as we possibly can. I've been so excited. I've been excited for years to record an episode on quantum machine learning and now that it's happening with an expert like you, yeah, I just, I woke up this morning, even with my cold, I, it felt like Christmas morning or something where I was like, oh my God, I'm going to learn so much today. <laughs> um, so you recently joined the University of Amsterdam as a postdoctoral researcher where you're working on quantum computing and you specialized in quantum machine learning uh, in the past. And that might still be something you're doing at Amsterdam. Um, So for our audience who might be new to both of these topics, quantum computing as well as quantum machine learning, can you provide a brief overview of these topics and why it's gaining so much attention? Yeah, sure. So maybe we can can start with with quantum computing first. So 
I think most people have heard about this, but um, the short story is that we're trying to build computers. We already have, you know, small scale devices that work on different principles, right? They work on different rules. And these rules are what is described by quantum physics. And so the hope is to try and build these com computers that you know, work on, on quantum physics that we believe actually is a true description of nature. And hopefully with this, these new computers, we can start to do more interesting things by being able to model things more efficiently and at larger scales. So quantum computers are, are quite beautiful, like theoretically, and um, a lot of companies and universities are, are trying to build these things and scale them up. Um, and now, of course, if we can imagine having quantum computers, which in principle should be able to do more interesting and hopefully more powerful things, the next step or the next question to ask is, can we use them for things like machine learning to make machine learning a little bit more interesting and more powerful? So this then, combining these two things, quantum computers with machine learning, introduced this field of quantum machine learning. And, you know, instinctively you might think, oh, well, it's you know very obvious that we can make machine learning better if we put quantum computers, like more powerful devices in there. But what we're realizing after a couple of years is that it's not so straightforward. Um, there's a lot of things within quantum computing that makes information very delicate and intricate. And trying to use this to do machine learning tasks in a more efficient or better way is not is not that easy. So this is like the, the broad you know, level concepts is trying to do machine learning better in some way, but while using quantum computers. So yeah, that's what I've been trying to do for the last couple of years and what I'm still hoping to do a little bit of um, from the more theoretical side now at Amsterdam. Nice. I mean, feel free to dig even more into, you know, the kind of the technical aspects of this. Like, so for example, the key distinction, as far as I'm aware, is like an extreme novice with quantum computing is that a key difference is that when we're working with classical computing, I guess we can call it in contrast with classical computing, we have bits that are either zeros or ones, but with quantum computing, there are qubits and they're not clearly zeros or ones. They're like, uh, like a probability distribution or something more like that. Yeah, that's a, that's a beautiful way to describe it and think about it exactly. So um, when we talk about qubits in a quantum computer, you can exactly think about you have some sort of quantum mechanical system um, and these are just like a probability distribution over bits. And then ultimately when you like want to observe the state of your system, this is, uh, this is famously known as like the quantum measurement collapse problem. When you look at the distribution of your bits or you try to like understand or analyze it or measure it, then you immediately see a collapse to like um, you know, one possible combination of, of bits, so like classical information again. Um, but there's like a subtle difference here because you might think, well, if it's a probability distribution over, over zeros and ones, how is this any different from making a classical computer probabilistic? So quantum computing is a little bit special in that um, the probability distribution is actually described better by what we call probability amplitudes rather than like numbers between zero and one real, real numbers. These probability amplitudes can take complex values, and um, and so the the distribution is a little bit different in that qubits can actually interfere with each other. So we can create what's called quantum interference, and so probability amplitudes can kind of like be amplified or cancel um, cancel each other out. And so you can get like weird, strange quantum effects or quantum phenomena through this interference that you can't see with just making bits probabilistic in a classical sense. So these probability distributions are a little bit different. 
And as I alluded to earlier, you know, the rules that govern quantum computers and, and these qubits, these quantum bits of information, is quantum mechanics. And quantum mechanics says that the evolution of your quantum system or whatever physical system you have, the evolution is linear. So the dynamics that describe the evolution within these computers is linear. And um, if it's not, then you also get like weird, crazy things that can happen. Like, uh, I think, you know, you violate some fundamental physical properties, like maybe um, time travel becomes real and all these other strange things. So, so the dynamics have to be linear. And uh, yes, and I think importantly, what's, what's easy to remember or like what's important to remember for quantum computers is that you start off with like some initial state, which can be described, you know, as, as you mentioned, as a probability distribution over zeros and ones over bits. And you evolve this state with linear dynamics, right? So you can apply some linear operations. And as a computer scientist, like what might make this easy to think of is that quantum computing is um, described by a lot of linear algebra. So your initial state can be thought of as a very, very large vector. And the linear dynamics is just applying a matrix multiplication to this vector and evolving it. And these matrices and vectors have certain constraints attached to them. And then eventually, when you want to measure your system, then you kind of observe a particular bit string and you can repeat your experiment over and over again to get an understanding of the true probability distribution that describes your quantum output or like the bit string that, that you're expected to measure. So this is quantum computing. And then, of course, machine learning fits very naturally on top of this because machine learning is also a lot of linear algebra. So um, what we're trying to do in, in the sense of quantum machine learning is try to understand a couple of things, like how can we encode data into these quantum states and evolve these quantum states that encode data in interesting ways so that we can measure outputs that look like labels for a machine learning task or maybe a probability distribution that we're trying to generate for a machine learning setting. So these are the kinds of um, high-level questions that one can answer. Let me try to like paraphrase that back to you. So with quantum computing, we have qubits instead of bits, and these qubits have probability amplitudes that um, have all kinds of um, like delicateness, but also nuance uh, to them that mean that they can represent information for some kinds of problems more efficiently than we can with classical computing. Uh, and then you mentioned there specifically that there's like linear algebra operations in the way that we interpret uh, what goes on uh, in these qubits. And uh, because of that linear algebra, which, you know, if our, if we have listeners out there who have been kind of figuring out how to use machine learning algorithms themselves at home, as opposed to using like scikit-learn as some kind of like high-level abstraction, if you try to implement it yourself, you quickly realize that there's lots of linear algebra operations that underlie that machine learning algorithm. And so similarly, you can take advantage of those linear algebra operations that we use in typical quantum computing and apply those to try to solve machine learning problems. Was that a reasonable yes, <laughs> yes, and feel free to ask like yeah, more detailed questions because I know I'm speaking at a very high level, but um, and it might sound all abstract. And if I use any jargon that you know um, <laughs> doesn't make sense, just just let me know. Yeah, let, let's yeah. let's go into the time travel a bit more. <laughs> <laughs> oh no <laughs> yeah, yeah this gets very science fictiony very fast but um yeah the time travel um, aspect. well but actually some aspect of quantum computing that is very science fictiony but as far as i can understand is quite real 
is quantum entanglement. Do you want to dig into that one a bit? Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, I think entanglement sounds very spooky at first. And, you know, a lot of people think, wow, this is something crazy that two, two um, you know, fundamental particles can become entangled. And then no matter how far you separate them in space, you know, like one tells you information immediately about the other, like instantaneously about the other. But mathematically, this is like actually quite simple what entanglement means, right? It's like, um, <laughs> it's, it's really, really straightforward. And in fact, I encourage you to to even Google like um, how to describe or how to even entangle two qubits. I mean, this is like really something quite trivial. Um, so to me, this is, I like to think in terms of math. So like, you know, nothing is really spooky or, or weird here. It's just that um, you cannot describe basically the state of one qubit without knowing the state of the other when they're entangled. So people get like, um, you know, people get the impression that, wow, this is so strange because you can separate these things very far in space and kind of, you know, it's almost like you immediately have information about something you shouldn't, right? Because if something is really, really far away, then um, I think Einstein kind of said that you know, information shouldn't be able to tra travel faster than the speed of light. Um, and so initially entanglement was thought to to violate this, but but actually not so, right? Because even though you kind of um, know the state of another qubit that's super far away, in order to communicate any information, you still have to like send it somehow, you know, through a cl classical channel or something like that across space. So, so there is no violation. And to me, there isn't anything spooky, but entanglement is indeed a resource for quantum computing. So there, it is, it is shown that entanglement is useful in, in a couple of settings for things like um, communication complexity and, and, and other fields outside of machine learning. So indeed it is, it is something, it is a resource. It is a correlation that can exist between particles or, or qubits, if you want to call them that, that um, cannot be observed outside of like quantum mechanical experiments. So, so this is, and, uh, you know, of course, it also uh, largely was the reason that the um, physics Nobel Prize went to, to the Bell experiments and, and stuff like this, I think, last year. So, so yeah, mm -hmm. it's pretty cool. <laughs> what if you, as a data scientist, could not only inform decision-making, but also drive it? As a leader within your organization, imagine confidently harnessing provably optimal decisions. Garobi Optimization, the leader in decision intelligence technology, equips you to unlock the power of mathematical optimization and transform your organization. Trusted by 80% of the world's leading enterprises, Garobi's cutting-edge optimization solver, lightweight APIs, and flexible deployment ease the transition from data to decision. Visit Garobi.com SDS to get exclusive access to a competition showcasing optimization's importance with prizes for top performers. That's G-U-R-O-B-I.com slash SDS. All right. So us talking about this, I was going to ask, like, how do, they, how do the qubits get entangled? But actually, I realized that I have to ask an even more fundamental question before I can do that, which is, what is a qubit anyway? Like, what what's getting entangled when the qubits are entangled? Yeah, this is a good question, um, and I should probably also start by declaring that I'm not a uh, an experimental physicist. So you know, the, the yeah, experimentalists yeah, yeah. Are, are really the ones in the lab building these qubits and building these quantum computers. So I just sit, you know, kind of with my pen and paper. Um, but I think how we can think about it is quite simple, right? So, so in nature, we have a couple of fundamental particles 
that make up other particles and other things. And um, But these fundamental particles, when we try to describe them, when we zoom into these tiny scales on these very small particles, this is when we realize that the classical physics we learn in high school starts to break down, right? This is when we realize that the true description is quantum. And so now what physicists are trying to do and people in the labs are trying to say, okay, um, how do we force these fundamental particles to actually exhibit quantum properties? And the answer is it depends. It depends which particle we have and um, and what and then it depends on like you know what what we need to do to it to, to exhibit this quantumness. So for example, um, there are companies and institutions trying to build quantum computers out of photons. So these are photonic based quantum systems. So a photon you can think of as just like a packet of a pocket of light, right? So it's like a yeah, a little so you have a laser and you have photons that, that come out through this laser. And each photon can be thought of as a qubit. And so you can manipulate photons in certain ways, and these can act as your qubits. But you can also make qubits out of um, out of electrons, for example. So there are certain types of electrons that exhibit quantum properties when you cool them down to very, very low temperatures. So these are the, the beautiful chandelier quantum computers that you often see pictures of with, like, I think IBM and a couple of other companies trying to do these. Um, so, so yes, so I think photons and electrons, these superconducting quantum um, computers or qubits are probably the most popular ones you will see. But I think there are also other companies and people trying other things, like, for example, with ions, which are also a different particle. So they, they're trying to create, like, for example, IonQ, which is another company, trying to create qubits out of ions and using ion traps and so on. Um, so, yes, so I, I hope this, like, kind of gives a little bit of the intuition is that, you know, basically there are a lot of fundamental particles. And if we do different things to them, we can start to see um, quantumness. And to be honest, like, we have small scale devices with a couple of different attempts or different uh, particles, but we don't know how to scale them up to large sizes that matter yet. So this is still an engineering problem that we have to figure out. And which one of these will win the race is something that I, I cannot say. And I think um, a lot of different people will have different opinions, but it will be a very exciting next couple of years to see what what um, yeah what wins. Right, right, right. So yeah, it just kind of occurred to me, and maybe this is obvious to a lot of our listeners, and maybe I knew this before, but I just kind of repieced it together, is that qubit, Q-U-B-I-T, that must stand for quantum bit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Probably, yeah. <laughs> uh, which is like probably where I should have started. Um, but yeah, so these qubits can be made up of photons, electrons, or ions, potentially other materials. And yeah, as you're saying, the kinds of um, quantum computers that we have today, like how how many qubits can we ha can we have in one quantum computer today? Yeah, so I guess again, it also depends on the system. I think um, right. I think I, like IonQ in particular have over a hundred for sure. Um, IBM, Google, they have also in the hundreds. Um, there are also some roadmaps for some of these uh, companies where they project they will get they will have like a couple thousand qubits in the next next year or two. So this will be quite exciting. But to just give you a, an idea, so so everything we have is kind of, I guess, in the order of hundreds, maybe if we're lucky, a thousand in the next couple of years or so. But yeah. um, just to give you a sense of like, you know, uh, these qubits are still very noisy, meaning they still like, you know, they they house a lot of error. You know, so they're they're difficult to manipulate. They're difficult to um, to kind of keep the quantumness in them. So you know, they're very hard to to use for practical purposes. So like. I think only once we get to the order of millions will we be able to start to see 
like interesting, useful applications of quantum computers and in quantum machine learning as well. Right, right, right. Yeah. So that's, I guess we're kind of like as a very loose parallel, we're kind of like where we were in like the 1950s or something with classical computing in terms of the number of bits that we can fit on a transistor and like the complexity of the computations we can do. Although my understanding, and you can just, you can tell me I'm completely wrong, but like my vague understanding is that because a qubit has so much more expressiveness than a classical bit, you can do more with fewer of them. So yeah, like it still makes sense to me that, okay, if we're going to be doing machine learning, we're going to need millions of qubits. Uh, that makes sense to me. But um, for like, you know, it seems like the kinds of problems that we're seeing quantum computers solve, they're able to solve much more complex problems than a classical computer with that same number of bits would be able to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm so glad you um, I'm so glad you brought this up because maybe I didn't uh, explain it too well initially. Because indeed, you're right. So, so I think like people love to make the statement that with just ah, I forget the number, like 120 qubits or something, you can already um, you know a quantum computer can already have more um, pieces of whole store more pieces of information than number of atoms in the observable universe right so like um so it sounds strange when i say to you that you need millions of qubits to do some interesting things and that's because i left out an important piece is that because these qubits are so noisy we need to perform what's called error correction on top of that so we really need to be able to like kind of remove this error by having more qubits in there creating more redundancy to be able to like actually do accurate simulations or accurate run accurate algorithms so we need more qubits in there not for um you know storing like um, information and doing things you know computing interesting things but rather for correcting these errors that we see so we need um, quantum error correction to to work and this is why the number like goes up into the millions to to do interesting things yeah that is super interesting and i had no idea about that um isn't that also that kind of like error correction? Is that related to, and maybe I'm completely misremembering this, but when we do quantum computing experiments, don't we, we often will run it several times to try to get like an, like a reliable average kind of of the answer? It is a little bit, but it's also, um, it's a little bit different. So I should also say I'm speaking out of my breadth of expertise here by, um, by talking about error correction, because there are a lot of researchers just focusing on this area alone. So you're right, like um, a quantum computer, like I said, you know, you, you start with some initial state, like some quantum state, um, and you can think of this as a vector, and then you apply some linear operations that so evolve your quantum state. And then what you can do at the end of your quantum experiment, you, you can observe your system, meaning you can get a, a classical bit string out of it. You can, you know, see what, what, what it collapses to. Um, but as you just said, like, you know, this is just one of many possible bit strings we can observe. So to get an accurate description of the probability distribution of a bit strings, you run your experiment multiple times and you get an average. But error correction is a little bit different in that um, when you actually physically evolve your system on a quantum computer. So when you apply individual gates to your qubits, meaning like, let's say you, you have a qubit in state zero and you want to flip it to state one. So you apply in what's called an X gate, right? Similar to classical computing. Um, because there's noise in these qubits, these gates that you apply are sometimes not 
not um, doing what they're supposed to do. And so error correction means like, let's have some buffer, uh, buffer qubits in there to make sure that the operations that we apply are actually the operations we want to see. So they kind of ensure uh, quality of our actual operations in the quantum computer and not just about the output. Very cool. All right. So yeah, so I'm kind of, I'm grasping here that with classical computing, classical bits, we probably since the very beginning, probably since transistors were invented, uh, something about them is that they are very reliably either a zero or a one. We can be quite confident about what's going on with them. With quantum computing, as you've mentioned already in the show, uh, just keeping them in that quantum state is quite fragile. And, um, and there's a lot of nuance in what we can interpret out of them. But simultaneously, because of this fragility, we need lots of yeah, repetition or redundancy or error correction um, to be able to collapse reliably into some kind of classical result. Yeah, exactly. And I think it's it's also important to say that um, classically we needed we need error correction as well. We've just managed to do it on classical computers in a much more efficient manner, right? So we still have to figure out how to um, yeah how to scale this up in a better way on a quantum computer. I think we largely have a lot of good ideas. Um, but because quantum information, like you, like you just mentioned, is so fragile, like it's not very easy. And also there, there exists a lot of fundamental problems. Like for example, there is this no cloning theorem, meaning we can't just, uh, copy one state over to another, to another cube. Like, you know, you can't just copy the state of a qubit over to another, whereas classically you can do this, right? So you can create redundancy and copies rather easily. And so this helps you with, with things like error correction. But on the quantum side, there are barriers to this. And so we have to do things a little bit more, more cleverly. And I think this is where, um, this is where like, you know, all these ideas of, of quantum error correction come into play. So yeah, it's a super nice, right. uh, nice area. Yeah, super interesting. So really quickly before I start like getting more into your area of expertise and like really getting into quantum machine learning versus classical machine learning, that kind of stuff, just really quickly at a high level in terms of the hardware to make this work. Um, like you've probably seen, like I've never seen a quantum computer, but you've probably seen them. Like, what are they like? Like how big are they? Do they need like super cooling or something to work? Like just at a high level, give us some color on what these quantum computers are like. Yeah, sure. So I've been, yeah, I've been super lucky to see quite a few. So I think, um, I think the first one I saw was IBM's and, uh, the most distinct thing I remember about it was walking into the room and the sound that these cooling devices makes is like really strange. I think if you Google it, you can like, you can Google like sound of a quantum computer and it's like this strange machinery that sounds like every like couple of seconds. And this is like, and to be honest, you know, I'm not a, not an experimentalist. I don't, I don't really understand like what all these machines are doing, but I, and I just remember also being so taken aback by the size, right? So this was a superconducting computer, quantum computer that I saw. And it was this beautiful chandelier made of like real gold hanging from the ceiling, all these crazy tubes and things coming out of it. And I just thought, wow, like this is a, this is a really impressive you know, device. And indeed, these ones are the ones that need like really, really cold temperatures down at the bottom of the of the chandelier. So the room itself is not is not cold, but like, yes, getting this... Um, this this part at the bottom super cold is is the task. 
I was also really lucky to see a photonic-based uh, quantum computer by a company in uh, Toronto named Xanadu, which uh, I think they're now beyond startup status. So I won't call them a startup, but they're they're building um, or they have built photonic-based systems, and there they have uh, really cool offices. And I think their quantum computers are on the, if I'm not mistaken, it's on the top floor, on the penthouse of of a really tall building in Toronto. So I remember doing a tour there, and this was also really beautiful to see. But um, yeah, there they have like these these tabletops where all these lasers now matter, right? And manipulating these photons is what's what's important. And I think the equipment is to get, for example, a table perfectly level is just crazy expensive. So there are a lot of nice. effort and time and things that go into all these computers. But yes, I think these are the only two types I've seen um, so far. I haven't seen an, an iron-based uh, quantum computer. I'd love to, but uh, yeah, they're they're really beautiful. Cool. Yeah, that was exactly the kind of color I'm looking for. Really rich descriptions. It's really funny that thing you mentioned about like getting a table perfectly level. There's an episode of Rick and Morty where Rick <laughs> creates a perfectly flat. Uh, he spends like all this time getting a perfectly flat surface. And it's obviously very silly. But then when people step on it, they're like, oh, oh, my goodness, it's so flat. Like, it's just so perfect. <laughs> yeah. Um, doesn't he have to like remove from Morty's memory the the flatness because he steps on perfect level and he just freaks out too much i think he has to wipe it from his memory right i think that's right yeah 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 um yeah so you watch that show as well yes my cat is actually my cat is uh his name is morty so yeah (laughs) (laughs) that's funny yeah i'm like i'm in desperate need of a new episode it's been so long i was actually i was just looking into this yesterday at the time of recording at least it's been almost a year since there's been a new episode so yeah, they Jones do take their time. <laughs> yeah. They do. Um, but it's worth it. Uh, so, yeah. All right. So beyond our Rick and Morty recommendation, what else do I have for you? Um, <laughs> so, um, yeah. So let's dig into so a bit more of your expertise on, on quantum machine learning. So what kinds of problems, I guess, and maybe it makes sense to kind of ease into this again with the quantum computing again, as opposed to specifically quantum machine learning, but... What kinds of problems can we solve with quantum computing that uh, we might not be able to solve as efficiently with classical computing? And then, yeah, the same question for like, quantum machine learning. Like, why do quantum machine learning? What's the advantage of that relative to some classical approach? Yeah, this is a this is a very good question. And to be honest, you know, um, we don't have a lot of clear, concrete directions for broad problem classes that quantum computers can just, you know, immediately provide blanket advantages to. So the most obvious one is the one that like caused all this um, excitement about quantum computing and got all the funding and things like this. And that's, that's this problem of, um, of prime factorization, right? Which also goes into a lot of, uh, a lot of cryptographic schemes and so on. And I think this idea of Shaw's factoring algorithm, algorithm, which uses quantum computing, um, to factorize very large numbers into their prime constituents. This was uh, this was the game changer because prime factorization is believed to be a very hard problem for classical computers to solve, right? So I think the best known algorithms to approach this problem take exponential time on a classical computer. So what Shaw did was introduce an algorithm on a quantum computer that takes polynomial time, right? So to solve this, this prime factorization problem. So this was super exciting because finally there was a useful problem, something that's used in a lot of things and important things like cryptography and so on, 
um, where quantum computers seem to provide an exponential speed up. And this is like, you know, this is this is what we're looking for. But unfortunately, since then, there there hasn't been many concrete things following up on on this. Like, you know, there there hasn't been too many examples. So what researchers are trying to do now at a, at a high level is, is look for these these types of, of problems that quantum computers seem to be naturally suited for. And this is this whole field of computational complexity theory, studying the hardness of problems and how much resources is needed to tackle them and where quantum computers can be beneficial. So um, to be to be quite frank, from this like complexity theory point of view, factoring is the best thing we have so far. And so we're still trying to find other types of problems that seem to be suited for quantum computers. And we haven't, um, we don't have any like uh, interesting, too much interesting things I think to say there yet, but um, I'm hopeful that, that we will soon. Be where our data-centric future comes to life at ODSC West 2023 from October 30th to November 2nd. Join thousands of experts and professionals in person or virtually as they all converge and learn the latest in deep learning, large language models, natural language processing, generative AI, and other topics driving our dynamic field. Network with fellow AI pros, invest in yourself in their wide range of training, talks, and workshops, and unleash your potential at the leading machine learning conference. Open data science conferences are often the highlight of my year. I always have an incredible time. We've filmed many super data science episodes there, and now you can use the code SUPER at checkout, and you'll get an additional 15% off your pass at odsc.com. Super interesting. So then, yeah, so in terms of like practical applications, um, yeah, the cryptography thing you hear a lot, because you also hear it a lot in the context of like, all of our passwords are going to be meaningless and the internet's going to be a free-for-all, which like, I don't know if you have thoughts on that, but uh, <laughs> um, I, I feel like I'm also, and this is like a vague memory, but um, somehow things like the traveling salesman problem, I feel like I've come across as like mm-hmm. something that is like very hard for quantum, or sorry, for classical computers uh, famously, um, so like the traveling salesman problem for any of our listeners that have done computer science is something that'll be a really obvious problem. But uh, with the traveling salesman problem, you when you have, say, three cities that a hypothetical salesperson needs to travel between, it's very easy to figure out what's the optimal route between the three cities to like minimize travel time. But as you add in additional cities, a fourth city, a fifth city, a sixth city, it starts to, the the compute complexity becomes like, yeah, I, I can't remember exactly if it's like polynomial or exponential, but it's like a crazy, the complexity gets very, very hard, very fast. Um, but yeah, somehow I, it's a super vague memory, but I feel like somehow quantum computers can do that like instantaneously solve that kind of problem. Yes, this is, um, this is a good question to bring up. Um, so I, I don't think so. So, so let me maybe cast uh, this into a... You know what I might have thinking of? <laughs> yeah. I might have been thinking of genetic computing. Oh, where, okay. maybe yeah. Which mm-hmm. like where there's like, yeah, I might I might be messing things up. This is like one of those classic no, no, things no, where you get not like... at, not at all. <laughs> I think this is a it's a really good thing to bring up because even myself, I thought, oh, quantum computers can um you know encode information like an exponential amount of information into like a small number of qubits, right? So, so you would think that these very large combinatorial problems are something easy for a quantum computer to to solve, and in particular, like this traveling salesman um, problem. 
because as you like you say as you add in more cities you know the, the number of combinations of cities you can visit starts to grow exponentially so the problem becomes very difficult to find what's the best route um and we hoped that like okay well a quantum computer can kind of cast all these variables into a state of superposition and maybe we can kind of understand in superposition like you know what's the best distance or something like that but it turns out to not be so straightforward and in fact this Traveling salesman problem is known to be an NP-hard problem under certain assumptions, right? So this means NP-hard means like basically um, basically requires a, a ton of resources to solve, you know, regardless of the of the the system you're looking at, whether it's quantum or classical. And um, maybe I should also say right now at the get-go that we don't believe so NP-hard problems are kind of the hardest problems we can face in computer science, right? So these are like this traveling salesman problem, for example, and a few others. And we don't believe that quantum computers can solve NP-hard problems in an efficient manner. So we don't believe that they will give us like polynomial time algorithms to solve NP-hard, like really hard problems, right? So, so this is unfortunate. And um, a way to see this is, is also quite straightforward. There is one particular problem in computer science that's, um, that's called the Boolean satis satisfiability, so SAT, S-A-T. This SAT problem, and SAT is known to be a, uh, a very hard problem for a classical computer to solve. In fact, we don't know any sophisticated ways to solve this problem other than just brute force search, right? So, so this is like the best we can do classically, and this takes exponential time. And now with quantum computers, we know a very nice result called um, through through Grover's search algorithm, right? So this is this is a search procedure that gives us a quadratic speed up over like classical search, unstructured search. So we know through the lower bounds of Grover that we can apply brute force search only at a quadratic speed up with a quantum computer. So in principle, if we can only solve SAT quadratically faster, we can't really hope to um, do anything interesting with the SAT problem. And SAT is at the foundation of all hard NP-hard problems in computer science. So most NP-hard problems oh. kind of derive themselves from SAT. So it's like a really depressing kind of statement. It's like, oh, well, you know, we have all these tons of hard problems, but quantum computers, you know, can't really do anything interesting. Um, but this is just a belief. It's not, uh, it's not a proof, of course, but it doesn't mean that other problems um, aren't out there, right? That quantum computers can provide exponential speedups for, and they're still useful. So, for example, like like factoring, which is not NP-hard or not believed to be NP-hard, um, but it's still like you know, kind of, we don't have any practical classical algorithms that can solve this efficiently. So, yeah, so I hope this like uh, sheds some light on on this area. Totally, that was everything you've said has been so fascinating and so interesting and novel to me. So. Yeah, thank you so much. Amazing. And okay, cool. So limited applications uh, today where we know that quantum computing provides some uh, big improvement over classical computing, one of those being prime fact, or the one example being prime factorization. Um, but then with quantum machine learning, why are people excited about that? Like, why were you excited about that? Why have you spent so much time researching it? Like, yeah, what is the potential in quantum machine learning? Uh, you know, it sounds kind of like you're saying, well, you know, we don't yet know of many other applications of quantum computing, and yet it seems like there, 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 there could be something here with quantum machine learning. Like, why is it exciting? Why are people pursuing that? Yeah, so maybe, maybe let's start by um, like rewinding a little bit as to 
what quantum machine learning is or what do I mean when I speak about it? Because I think there are a lot of different ways to think about it. And then we can kind of motivate a little bit some of the successes because you're right. I mean, from a complexity theory point of view, this very high level point of view, it seems a bit counterintuitive when I say like quantum computers aren't good for hard problems. But um, you'll see that I think there are still pockets and areas that quantum computers can be super useful for. And one of them is, is machine learning. So when I say quantum machine learning, there are um, a couple of ways to think about it. The first is like, well, you know, in, in regular machine learning, we're always concerned with a data set and we want to do something with that data. We maybe want to learn some structure or we want to kind of apply some labels to a new piece of information that comes in from a, you know, a distribution that looks like this data set and so on. So there's usually some notion of data. Um, and in the quantum machine learning picture, we can we can say, okay, maybe this data is something classical, like our pixels in a picture like, that we put into a vector. You know, maybe it's just a classical vector. Um, but there's also this idea of uh, or notion of quantum data, and uh, and what this means, we can we can talk about a little bit later. But um, but basically, when we have data in this quantum mach quantum machine learning picture, we need to encode it into a quantum state. So we need to somehow get it into the quantum computer to be able to process it, right? So this is step one. Step two is then once it's in the quantum computer, what, once it exists as a quantum state, what do we do to it, right? Like how do we evolve the quantum state? How do we change it? How do we apply operations to it that's meaningful? And then the step three, the last step, of course, is how do we measure our quantum system to get an output that is useful for us in machine learning? Like if we want to label the picture cat or dog, how do we interpret a bit string measurement uh, you know, out of our quantum system such that it tells us it's a cat or a dog. And there are many different ways to do that. There are many different ways to encode data, to evolve it, and to read out. And so when people do quantum machine learning, 99% of the time, they're trying to study how these aspects work and how we should do them under certain assumptions, right? Because it's, it's almost impossible to say, um, this is a blanket approach to encode every piece of information. This is a blanket approach to evolve every piece of information. And this is how you should read it out. It really always depends. It depends on the structure of your data, your, your specific machine learning task, and, um, and what it is you want to do, right? So quantum machine learning is really these three ingredients in understanding how these three things work, how to put the data into a quantum state, how to evolve it, and how to like, understand it in terms of a label for a machine learning task. So, um, okay. So I hope that makes sense. And then we can like, talk about sense. some, okay. Okay. Good. And yeah. I think I've, I've got it. Yeah. Like, so, uh, with quantum machine learning, we need to first convert our data into a quantum state. And I do definitely want to dig later. I've made a note and I'm not going to let it okay. slide <laughs> about this quantum data idea, which is completely novel to me. Um, but yeah, so start with converting data into a quantum state and then, I wrote down perform operations, but you actually used a different uh, verb or uh, or now. Like you, you, what, yeah, evolve, in, in this, uh, evolve, but performing evolve. operations, exactly the same thing, right? Yeah. So let's, oh, let's okay. use that. Yeah, I think it's the evolve, same. You can think about the same sounds way. cooler. <laughs> <laughs> we, we, we're performing operations in classical machine learning all the time. I want, ev I want evolution. That sounds way cooler. <laughs> um, and, and then the third state, uh, or the, th the third step, sorry, is then converting back from the quantum state into something that we can easily interpret, like a vector of pixels or whatever. Exactly. Yeah, that's exactly right. Okay, so then to your to your next point about like um, 
now how how would this be advantageous? And here um, there are a couple of interesting things or results that that have come out. And I think probably probably the most intuitive one to to a machine learning or data science audience is this idea of um, kernel methods and um, and support vector machines, which quantum computers seem very naturally suited for. So for those of you, I just like recap very quickly, like, you know, the idea of a support vector machine and, and these kernel methods is, you know, usually your data is given to you in a very, um, in a very like messy sort of, um, sort of space or set, like a setting, right? So let's say you've, you're given a ton of information and now you want to kind of classify this information into two subsets, let's say cats and dogs, for example. So you can, you can, you know, try to fit a very complicated classifier to say, okay, this is these are the cats and these are the dogs, and this is how I classify my data. But another thing you could do is you could take your data and you could map it to a different space such that it becomes really easy to separate your classes with a very simple classifier, like a linear classifier, right? So like just like drawing a line between these two, these two data sets, these two uh, subsets in your data. And how people typically do this is they take their data and they map it to a higher dimensional space. And there in a higher dimensional space, things kind of become easy. You can, you can like have a hyperplane, which is like, you know, you can think of it as like a, a generalization of a linear classifier that separates your classes. So this is like this idea of what a support vector machine does. It, it takes your data and it maps it by something called a, a feature map into a higher dimensional space and then applies a linear classifier, right? So, so why is this interesting for quantum and quantum machine learning? Well, because the step one that I told you about, which is like taking your data and encoding it into a quantum state, you can actually think of it as this map into a higher dimensional space. So you can think about like taking your data and trying to encode it into a quantum state as a quantum feature map. And then you can apply these operations, which can be a linear classifier. So if you figure out a clever way to map your data in, onto a quantum computer such that you kind of already separating things in a nice way in you know quantum space what we call it quantum Hilbert space um, then this is super interesting and super useful right and moreover if you show that this mapping is something very hard for a classical computer to do then you're in the money right so there like you've got a useful kernel uh, or useful I should say feature map and um, and you know, you can you can kind of use it for these these uh, these machine learning tasks. So there have been some some interesting results here where people have shown that certain quantum feature maps and quantum um, you know these quantum support vector machines and so on are classically intractable, meaning they're you know they're difficult for classical computers to do. But the one downside is that the data sets that seem to be amenable to these maps are very artificial. So they don't seem to be naturally suited for data that we have in, in nature and in real life. So people are still trying to figure out if there's a natural quantum feature map that suits data sets that we're interested in. So this is still an open question. So there's been some, some, some proofs that there are some hard things you know, that a classical computer can't do, but we still need to find some use cases for them. Data science and machine learning jobs increasingly demand cloud skills, with over 30% of job postings listing cloud skills as a requirement today and that percentage set to continue growing. Thankfully, Kirill and Atle, who have taught machine learning to millions of students, have now launched CloudWolf to efficiently provide you with the essential cloud computing skills. 
With CloudWolf, commit just 30 minutes a day for 30 days and you can obtain your official AWS certification badge. Secure your career's future. Join now at cloudwolf.com SDS for a whopping 30% membership discount. Again, that's cloudwolf.com SDS to start your cloud journey today. Very cool. That was magnificently explained as well. Thank you so much. That was like, that was an absolute delight to hear. And the kind of, I guess the summary point here is that with quantum support vector machines, with QSVMs, while there have been theoretical demonstrations that QSVMs um, provide, you know, can, can in some circumstances provide a great speed up over a classical support vector machine solution. That is only the case with data that we aren't aware of, like uh, data that are set up in a way that, that we, we don't seem to observe uh, from some natural phenomenon that, that, that would typically occur and that we would be putting into our models. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, that's super interesting. So the quantum support vector machines, um, so... You in particular, this is kind of jumping into our next big topic area, but um, it's interesting that you went down the route of quantum support vector machines because you have uh, written a groundbreaking paper called The Power of Quantum Neural Networks. So, um, and you co-authored that with some amazing people with a top quantum researcher, David Sutter, as well as a Fields Medalist. So this is like a Fields Medal is like the Nobel Prize for Mathematics. And uh, yeah, Alessio Figali um, has a Fields Medal. <laughs> and you co-authored this Power of Quantum Neural Networks paper with uh, David Sutter and Alessio Figali. Um, so um, yeah, it's interesting to me because, and, and there's a funny parallel here where um, today, um, a conference like NeurIPS, Neural Information Processing Systems, it was created in the 80s to study artificial neural networks, which it, now we typically call deep learning. Um, but through, like, th there was a period of time, um, kind of in the early part of this millennium, in the first decade of this millennium, where even at a conference like NeurIPS, which has neural in the name, everybody was doing support vector machines. <laughs> um, and, uh, and then it was um, like AlexNet, the AlexNet moment in 2012, where Jeff Hinton and his team at University of Toronto showed that uh, deep learning is practical for uh, image recognition at large scales. And that led to this like um, reemergence of neural networks as the leading approach in machine learning and artificial intelligence for a broad range of problems, not every problem for sure, but you know, a lot of the AI advancements in the last decade have been made through uh, deep learning, through neural networks. So it's interesting to me <laughs> that you have this expertise in quantum neural networks, um, and yet it was still, uh, yeah, support vector machines, quantum SVM, that you went to uh, an example of first. Yeah, I think... Um... Yes, so you summarized the the history of, of machine learning quite beautifully. And I think um, the reason people like kernel methods or these support vector machines, you know, however you want to call them so, so much, is because they're 
beautiful to study from a theoretical point of view, right? So here, like, they're easy to, well, not easy, but there are at least a lot of known things that we can say about machine learning from the support vector, uh, support vector machine picture. Um, but neural networks, as you, you, know, you also mentioned, they just work so damn well, right? So, like, they just work for everything we throw at them. They just can do it. They can solve really, really complex problems um, in almost like a human a human like fashion so you know why and and researchers in, in machine learning have been trying to figure out from a theoretical point of view why but it was mostly the empirical success that drove all the theoretical studies that came afterward right so and and to be honest I think there's still so much we don't know from a theoretical point of view as to why these deep networks work so well um, and then you know you might think well why do why do we ignore kernel methods if we can understand them theoretically? But the downside is we can't implement them so well. There's like a cost in training and optimizing these support vector machines um, that scales like something like quadratically in the in the number of um, I think in the in the data. So this is this is quite expensive, and I think neural networks this doesn't have this quadratic scaling. It's it's actually linear, right? So the cost there is is far cheaper. So you can optimize much much larger neural networks with billions of parameters than you can with these these uh, support vector machines. So the reason I mentioned uh, support vector machine as an example now is because on the quantum side, it fits very naturally in a theoretical framework and understanding what you're doing. But whether this will be the thing that we use on a quantum computer or not is still open for debate. And, and my guess is probably not. And, and so then I guess this is a nice natural segue into well, what, are, what are these quantum neural networks, right? What, what do these things look like? And are they quite similar to the classical neural networks that we that we know and love, and um, and what a quantum neural network is, you know, you can you can kind of understand it in in one sentence is it's basically a quantum circuit which you know consists of certain operations. You can think of them as matrix operations, but these operations are parameterized, so they depend on parameters. And just like normal machine learning, you need to figure out how to tweak and train and optimize these parameters to fit your data. So quantum neural networks are these parameterized circuits where now we have to like figure out how to optimize these parameters for, for our machine learning task. And so the reason we considered these class of models in this paper that you, you mentioned, this power of um, quantum neural networks paper, is because we wanted to see if they can do anything interesting. Um, you know, do they offer us anything different over traditional classical neural networks? So this is what we tried to, to investigate here. Yeah. Yeah, super interesting. So it sounds like where we could be with quantum neural networks today is that unlike the quantum SVM example, um, there we may not have yet identified. Um, well, actually, I mean, you tell me. I don't, I don't know why I'm. It like is there. It, so it sounds like with QSVMs, we have a clear we have clear instances of situations, even if the data are not likely to be come across in the real world, we have examples of QSVMs being more efficient uh, than classical SVMs. Is it the case that we're not quite there with quantum neural networks yet? Or, um, yeah, it, yeah. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. You're on the, the complete right way to think about it, right? Because um, how did we get there classically? Well, we have computers that we can, you know, do interesting, fascinating things with. We can, like, we thanks to things like backpropagation, we can scale up neural networks to billions and trillions of parameters now, where we can 
we can train and optimize very large models at scale. Um, but on the quantum side, we can't do this yet, right? So in fact, a lot of um, the research that I did while I was um, a student researcher at Google was really trying to see if we can get backpropagation scaling of resources on these quantum computers. Um, and it's really tricky because of this problem that in information is so delicate on a quantum computer, right? So, so we can't really say we have you know, this notion of what our next best quantum model is going to be, our sort of quantum neural network, um, which is, I'm using it a little bit differently now because you know, people use this term for parameterized models, but will it be the next you know, best neural network? Um, probably not, but we can't really run any impressive empirical studies yet because our computers are still, our quantum computers are still so small. So, um, so yeah, so it's unfortunate that we can't replicate the same sort of classical machine learning success with just try and see experiments. So we have to try and, you know, like maybe analyze things a little bit more carefully from a theoretical point of view, because this is the only option we have right now. Right, 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 right. So the work that you've done, so things like your power of quantum neural networks paper, they are like theoretical machine learning more than uh, yes, exactly. empirical. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so what you're saying with a paper like this is as we begin to scale up quantum computers uh, orders of magnitude more from where we are today, from hundreds of qubits to maybe uh, millions of qubits or something, at that kind of scale, then we will be able to do uh, Quantum neural net. We will be able to solve quantum neural networks. We'll be able to parameter. We'll be able to, you know, yeah, find optimal parameters with a quantum neural network, and um, these kinds of advantages will emerge then. Well, I hope so, but we might still encounter some some barriers, right? So, for example, you know, going to these large scales where we have billions of parameters is essential for quantum machine learning to be able to compete with, with you know, large language models and things like this, right? So we have to be able to scale our quantum machine learning models up, but we're gonna have to be able to train them, right? Um, as efficiently as we can train neural networks. And this is where this idea of like backpropagation comes in. Can we replicate backpropagation, which you know, I'm sure most people listening here know that backpropagation is a recipe to compute gradients in a very efficient way of these super large neural networks. And this allows us, this gradient information allows us to go back to our neural network and change our parameters so that we get a better function, like we get a better a fit to our data. But on a quantum computer, backpropagation is not so easy because how do we kind of reuse information to like compute gradients efficiently? We can't really peek into our circuit at different points and like you know, extract information because as soon as we do, our information collapses, we lose it. So, um, so we're going to encounter some barriers when we scale up our quantum models and we need to figure out a better way to optimize them and train them. And backpropagation scaling or like, you know, resources that replicate backpropagation is really hard to do. And so something we, we showed recently is that, um, is that uh, backpropagation scaling is pretty much impossible uh, to achieve unless you have uh, something called quantum memory available to you, and um, and this is also something you know maybe if if you're interested we can we can dive a little bit more into, but um, all I want to say is that yeah there there are some like actual barriers there that even if we have huge quantum computers it's not so straightforward that we'll be able to like 
optimize them in the ways we can optimize neural networks. Nice. Yeah. I mean, let's dig into some of these uh, terms. So yeah, quantum data, quantum memory, uh, feel free yeah. to pick which one you think is the, the natural sure. one to define next. Yeah, sure. So I'm glad I'm glad we get a chance to talk about this because I think this is a rather, well, at least to me, this is like a new area. And this is super exciting because a lot of new results have come out recently um, by some researchers at Caltech and Google that show some really positive things in this direction. So, okay, so what is what is quantum data? Um, well, I mentioned that you know you can think of of a quantum state as like a vector, um, you know, that encodes some information for your machine learning task. So maybe maybe it encodes like some information about um, you know, let's say you've got let's say your data set consists of um, properties of cats and dogs, right? Like their weight and their height and their color and so on and whatever. Um, and you figure out a way to kind of encode this information into a vector, right? So you can pr pretty much like list, let's say, the, the numbers in a vector um, somehow. Um, and then your first step is to encode this into a quantum state. So, um, you know, there are lots of different ways, but you can imagine that, um, let's say you apply some operations to your in your quantum computer that depend on the values of these vectors, right? So let's say you, um, you're like doing rotations about an angle that depends on like the weight of your cat or something like this. Seems very artificial, but this is, this is actually something people do. They, they encode information like this. But what I mean by this idea of quantum data is that you make no assumptions about how you encode your classical information into a quantum state. You're just given quantum states. You're given quantum states by some some physical process that you make no, no assumptions about. And um, you might then ask, well, like, where does this come up in, 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 in machine learning? And the answer is, I don't actually know, but I think it, it's relevant for like a lot of physicists actually, because they run, um, and chemists even, they run a lot of experiments in the lab and, and what comes out of these experiments are, are data that they then go and process for, for various reasons. So you can imagine like some sort of, physical experimental setup that contains data that comes to you in the form of quantum states. And so this is what I mean by quantum data. And now what I mean by quantum memory is, well, if you have a way to take these quantum states that come to you from your experiments and efficiently transduce them, so efficiently store them in, um, in quantum memory, so in memory, right? So you've got states coming to you and you can house them. And then you can house them and directly process them on a quantum computer. This is an idea of, of quantum memory, and um, and this is not uh, this is not something so far fetched. This is something that people are working on. This the idea of quantum senses that basically take these states that come to you um, and then kind of process them thereafter on a quantum computer. And why am I telling you this? Well, I'm telling you this because these kinds of experimental setups, when you have quantum data given to you that you make no assumptions about. And you can use them immediately on a quantum computer. There, there are interesting learning tasks that people have shown you can do. Like you can you can perform learning tasks there that you you need exponential resources to do otherwise. Like classically, on a if you just have like sort of if you have no access to quantum memory, then this this makes this task quite hard. So. This might sound a bit convoluted, but all I'm trying to say is there, there's exponential separations that exist for certain learning tasks. So this idea of quantum memory is actually quite powerful and something that I think a lot of people are working towards experimentally. And theoretically, there are known results for learning tasks 
that um, that are really interesting. So I can um, also like send, provide some links to some papers if you know if anybody wants to read about this. And um, and these learning tasks are are um, of course right up our alley in machine learning, right? Where we're, we're often trying to like learn or approximate something with some with some goal in mind. So I think this is like a really interesting area and um, how this quantum memory will look again, like, I, I don't know. I think this is something for experimentalists to, to comment about and, and think about, but from a mathematical point of view, this is actually also super beautiful. Why we get extra power with having quantum states in memory and being able to process them. So remember I spoke initially about when we measure a quantum system, we collapse our information to something classical, right? So this is like, we kind of destroy our quantum information. But when we have multiple kind of states in memory, we can design an, a, a measurement in a very clever way that it doesn't entirely destroy our quantum information. So we can measure our system without destroying all our information. And if we do that, we can then reuse it, right? We can reuse our information. So this is like the trick to having like access to quantum memory is that we can start to do like more interesting things. Um, theoretically, we can start to like design measurements in the lab such that we don't destroy our quantum information entirely. And so for machine learning, this is really nice because, well, if we can reuse our quantum information, maybe we can kind of track you know, things in, in between and like reuse stuff and create efficiencies and, and learn things more efficiently. Yeah. I hope that makes sense. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. That does make sense. And here's a really dumb question. Uh, um, <laughs> but, but does quantum memory somehow resolve the issues that you were mentioning right from the beginning of the episode around when we, when we try to measure um, qubits, they like, they collapse into like, a known state does does quantum memory somehow get around that and allow us to maybe like you were mentioning how we like we can't copy information but maybe we can't uh, co copy quantum information but maybe somehow quantum memory allows us to do that to some extent yeah this is a really great question and um and so i should probably say it's um there's a trade-off that exists between how much information you can extract from your system and um and how much you disturb your quantum state, right? So how much information you destroy. So there's a trade-off there. Right. And and when you have like um, when you have access to quantum memory, so multiple quantum states in memory, you can kind of design things in a way that you can extract more information whilst not disturbing, not destroying too much, right? So you can kind of extract more than you can with just one one state at a time. So this is like the the intuition, and so it, it kind of resolves. A little bit this this idea of um, being able to reuse information because now um, you know you can design measurements in a bit of a clever way so it's strictly more powerful than just having one state at a time but it doesn't completely resolve it because indeed you are still you know you still need to measure and you still need to extract and you still need to destroy or disturb your state um, so the idea like from a research point of view is how do you do this in a very elegant manner that you extract enough information out with the resources you have, right? So, so a lot of people are trying to say, well, if I just have a reasonable amount of quantum memory, um, can I achieve uh, some learning task in an efficient manner? You know, something that doesn't require exponential time, something like this. And it turns out there are some learning tasks for which 
this is plausible. You can you can solve things in a in an efficient amount of time if you have a reasonable amount of quantum memory. And if you don't have this quantum memory, then you run into costs like exponential time. So so this I think is quite cool. Yeah. That is super cool. Okay, so this reminds me of an analogy that someone, a teacher, it might have been like a high school teacher, uh, said to me so long ago, which is, uh, yeah, it must have been like in a high school physics class or something, that the reason why, like an analogy to kind of think of for why it's so difficult to measure aspects of systems that are so small is that it would be like if you had a puddle, a little puddle on a sidewalk, and you used a thermometer the size of a skyscraper to measure the temperature of that puddle, you're going to end up changing the temperature of the puddle with your gigantic thermometer. And so the like the closer you try to get to the puddle, <laughs> the more you mess up, like how accurately you're getting the temperature of that puddle. Yeah, indeed. Indeed. I think I think yes, and I think there's also a, you know like a whole. If people are interested in in quantum mechanics, there's this whole field of open quantum systems, which I think fits very nicely in what you're describing, right? It's like um, in reality, we we don't have these perfect closed systems that we can just um, you know, implement in a lab. There's interactions within the environment, like you know this puddle thermometer analogy is is perfect for that, like. We actually need something more realistic, and this is this field of open quantum systems that tries to understand um, if you have interactions with an environment, how do you model these more accurately? And there, I think things um, very quickly become quite complicated. But uh, indeed, I think it is it is relevant. Yeah. Right, right, right. Is this? Um, I'm really scratching at some vague old memories here, but this is like, I think the thing that I was just describing with the thermometer and the puddle was related to the Heisenberg uncertainty principle. Um, anyway, I, <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't know, yeah, I don't maybe, know how relevant that uh, is. Uh, okay. Maybe, yeah, yeah, I, maybe. I, I, don't, I don't particularly see. I guess like, yeah, that the uncertainty principle is, is also, I think, quite straightforward to understand, right? Like it's like, if you're trying to, to zero in on one component of your system, then you kind of lose information about another and vice versa, right? So, mm -hmm. um, yeah. so I think this is, and this is, I think it, yeah, you can kind of also relate this a little bit to this information um, disturbance trade-off that I, I mentioned, right? It's like, if you want to kind of get a lot of information out, you're going to disturb your state quite a bit and, and, and vice versa. If you don't want to disturb your state, you're not going to get that in, much information out. So, so yeah, I guess right. in some sense it's similar. Yeah. Um, so, all right. What's next for you with your research? So, yeah, like, you know, I, I guess actually, you know, what, what's kind of like a main takeaway from the quantum neural network stuff or other papers, you know, that you've had that you think would be relevant to the audience? And then like, what's exciting for you now? Like, what are you working on now? And, and so what do you think, you yeah, know, sure. what breakthrough might be next? Yeah, yeah, sure. So, so personally, I mean, I joined the University of Amsterdam and their quantum computing group there is called QSoft. I joined them because they're one of the strongest teams. I, I, you know, in this is a no-brainer. They're one of the strongest teams from the point of um, quantum theory and in particular, like complexity theory. So I mentioned this a bit earlier. It's like the study of the hardness of problems and where, where can quantum computers be useful in this idea? So quantum, um, quantum complexity theory is something I have now become 
really interested in. And I'm in no way an expert, but I think if we want to be able to say something rigorous, even about the types of machine learning problems that we're going to hope to solve or, or you know, make more efficient with quantum computers, we have to understand things from a theoretical computer science point of view. And this is where this complexity theory comes in. So I, um, I joined this group because of, you know, they're, so, they're quite strong in this area and I would really like to, to grow my expertise there and then see what we can do um, potentially for, for machine learning and so on. But I think there are a lot of open questions and things that, um, that researchers can look at right now. So, for example, I, I mentioned this problem of, um, of trying to train these parameterized you know, quantum neural networks at scale. We need to find um, a way to be able to do gradient descent in, a, in an efficient manner like we can with neural networks. Um, so there was this recent work that, that we did on quantum backpropagation which addresses this question. And in there, there's a ton of open questions, like maybe we can find special types of quantum models that train well, that train efficiently, and are useful for quantum machine learning. So we have a, a couple of ideas in there that if people are interested in, they can kind of just think, look at the conclusion section and see like, okay, these are some areas that we think um, might be interesting. So trying to train these models. Um, I do still think that this kernel support vector machine area is something that is um, is interesting and something there that that can be found that's quite useful to find an interesting feature map that is relevant for a particular type of data set. So I, I always encourage people to start there, especially if they're coming from classical machine learning. I think this is the most natural way to think as well in, in terms of um, quantum machine learning. So I think this is rather cool. And I'll make the pitch again for quantum memory. So having access to multiple copies of, of, of states at a time and figuring out what it is we can learn with this added ability from a theoretical point of view, I think is, is understudied. And I think there's a lot to say there. I think so, so in particular, like for example, um, Robert Huang, Jared McLean and, and others from Caltech and Google, they have had a series of papers that show in a machine learning setting, there are learning tasks for which we can solve, you know, efficiently with this added ability of quantum memory that we can't do if we don't have it. So I think this is a really interesting direction. And um, I think that it's, yeah, I think it's probably what I would like to look into a lot in the, in the next year or so. Yeah. Very nice. Sounds super exciting. Um, and then I would have mentioned this in the intro to your episode, which so, I don't think I explained this to you before we started recording, but I script an intro and an outro after we record our conversation. And in that intro, you know, I talk about your background a bit. And so prior to getting into quantum physics, you worked in finance. So your undergraduate degree is actually in business and actuarial science. And you got your CFA, um, which is by all accounts, quite a challenging thing to do. And then you worked in the investment industry. And so what happened that you were like, <laughs> you know what, because <laughs> we haven't, you know, we've been talking this whole time and you haven't been like, oh, I need to like, I'm going to use quantum support vector machines to figure out how to do accounting better or like, you know, <laughs> um, it doesn't, it, yeah. So like what, what happened? Were, were, were you aware of <clears throat> quantum computing, quantum machine learning kind of in the background or where did it jump up from and that you were like, this is what I need to spend my life doing? <laughs> yeah, this is um this is always quite funny to talk about and um and I think a lot of people don't understand the decisions until I explain them because yeah, I think growing up 
I don't think I really even fully understood what physics was, um, you know, let alone quantum physics. I think in high school, I, it was my my worst subject, actually. Like, I didn't understand anything about it. It was always super intimidating for me. And um, But I, I liked math, you know, so so I thought, okay, like, to get a good job, my parents also encouraged me to go a little bit into finance. Um, and so I did actuarial science as a degree, and I, I did the next, you know, next step was to get a job. And and don't get me wrong, I enjoyed it a lot. I, I liked working in the investment industry, but I just kept wanting more, like, um, and, and particularly like more of um, quantitative uh, sort of fulfillment, you know. So I, I always liked equations and things like this. And um, and so I started learning a little bit. This is how I, I found machine learning, like literally just on YouTube with like podcasts, like things like this. I started listening to these things and getting interested. And then somehow I eventually went down the rabbit hole of, I think I, I YouTubed a video about the Schrodinger equation and this was not um, on purpose. This was actually, I was like reading up about um, the black skulls equation, which, you know, is used to, to model um, uh, financial instruments. And the lecturer was a physicist and he related a little bit to the evolution of a particle through space and time um, and then used the Schrodinger equation. And I, I could like follow the math. And then this just was like, whoa, this is, this is so cool. And so I went down this rabbit hole of, okay, what's the Schrodinger equation? What's physics? And then I found quantum physics and it was all just very lucky, like right time, right place. I, I wrote to like a ton of professors in South Africa where I live and said, these are the skills I have, you know, can I, can I please like come study physics with you? <laughs> and uh, one of them wrote back, you know, professor like Petrocioni from, um, He's now in Stellenbosch, but uh, yeah, he he accepted me as a student, and I went back to live with my parents, and uh, <laughs> I uh, yeah, I then just got consumed by by this idea of quantum physics. And to be honest, back then there was no real obvious direction. I don't think there were a lot of jobs in quantum physics, so my family was super concerned, like how am I going to make money? How am I going to feed myself? But I think in the end, it it worked out. I, I was lucky with timing, and um, yeah, I think. I think I think it's okay so far. So this is how I went to this direction. Amazing. That's such a cool story. I was smiling ear to ear the whole time. It's like, <laughs> yeah, so great to be able to find a passion like that. And I get the like the itching for kind of more my um my sister who's actually at the time of recording, she's been staying with me here in New York for a couple of days, but she lives in Toronto and she's worked in finance for many years. She did um uh an undergrad in financial math and uh, has been working as a trader uh, for many years um, and now is in the ESG space. But something that's that she had this similar itch to always be like doing the most complex derivatives trading possible because like you, yeah, I guess people like you and her have such a, such a desire to be like constantly pushing the envelope of your mind and digging into something deeper and building upon the foundations that you have. And I think in finance, you often completely, in terms of practical applications of finance, <laughs> you start to run into like limits of how uh, abstract or complex um, the math can be and still be useful and make money. <laughs> exactly. Um, I think the, so, yeah, yeah, the last part is, is important of what you said was like the things that I wanted to do. I don't think anyone in finance cares about that. And that was the problem I think was like, I was thinking very abstractly and uh, companies of course have purpose and uh, yeah, I just wasn't aligned to this anymore. <laughs> yeah. yeah. 
theoretical finance. Uh, I don't know. You don't hear about that. That sounds nice. No, no, that sounds, yeah, that (laughs) sounds nice. But then you're probably limited to universities, I I imagine. Yeah. Let's imagine everyone has all the resources they need to clothe themselves and be secure (laughs) and have food. Um, It's a nice theoretical finance idea. Um, So, yeah, very cool. Um, Let's jump now to audience questions. Because uh, we had a lot of interest in you coming on the show. So for our listeners who aren't aware, um, for some guests that I have coming up, um, and I don't do it for every guest, it's kind of, it's, I, I don't have an exact process for this, but I basically think ahead to who am I interviewing next week? And is this somebody that if I'm like, this is the topic that I'm thinking of covering, or this is their background, is it likely to elicit a lot of questions, a lot of interest? And in your case, it very much did. So we got several hundred reactions from people on LinkedIn, tens of thousands of impressions, dozens of comments. Um, And so, yeah, and some amazing questions came up from the audience. Nice. So our first question here is from Annika Nell, and she is actually from Cape Town. (laughs) So from your part of the globe. Uh, Cape Town, and uh, you mentioned Stellenbosch University there uh, recently as being uh, the place where there was a professor that first let you uh, move back in with your parents and uh, and do some physics. Um, and so Annika, actually, she studied physics and math at Stellenbosch and uh, computer science as well, uh, and now works as a back-end developer in Cape Town. And Annika is wondering... Uh, for people looking to do their postgrad in, uh, it, it says this field, so I'm assuming quantum machine learning. Uh, yeah, how does somebody, uh, you know, get the right background? I guess it's it's they watch one YouTube video on the Schrodinger wave equation, uh, <laughs> and then they're good to go. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, I think uh, yeah. Well, that's the spark, and then the rest is a lot of. Um sleepless nights, hard work, and uh, <laughs> eating and breathing physics, quantum physics till things start to click, right? Um, no, so I think I think for for people in South Africa, you know, I can, I can immediately say, okay, well, Francesco's group at the University of Stellenbosch, if you're interested in quantum machine learning, this is the way to go. But for other people in, in other countries and other places, this is, um, it's not so easy to always figure out who to contact and what to do, right? So, um, if you're interested in quantum machine learning, I'd say start by um, first figuring out figuring out what it is you're interested in the field, like within the field, right? Because it's quite broad. So there's a beautiful there's a beautiful textbook that's you know now I'm again gonna give a shout out to my my professors. So um, there's a book called Machine Learning with Quantum Computers that was written by Maria Schultz and Francesco Petruccioni, who were my PhD supervisors. But this textbook is is absolutely beautiful. It covers almost everything there is to cover in, in quantum machine learning, all the aspects, all the different types of things, all the moving parts. And it's also super digestible for someone who is not a physicist. Um, so someone like me, for example, I, I wasn't a physicist by background, um, but I could pick up this book and I could kind of make sense of it after a couple of reads. So I'd recommend starting with something like this. And within this textbook, there are references for each section and each thing. So if there's something in there that like piques your interest, you can kind of look at the reference and see the paper and see the authors of the papers. 
And there you can start to gauge, you'll see immediately some commonalities in like who's writing the certain types of on, on the research on the topics that you like and just reach out to them directly. I mean, academics in particular are super approachable. You know, it might seem strange to just send somebody a random email if you're coming from, um, you know, the investment industry or like any kind of industry. But in academia, this is totally normal, right? Like just reach out and say, hi, I've read your, your work and I have a question about it and I, I want to study it or I want to be, I want to do my postgrad. And nine times out of 10, if you structure the email appropriately um, and positively and you show your enthusiasm, you convey that, that spark of interest, um, someone will help you. So I think this is a this is a way to go. And this is kind of like what I did, right? I, I wrote emails to everybody, even though nobody knew who I was. I was totally random. I had no skills, um, but I was persistent. So th these are the two things, like be polite, be persistent, and um, and find research positive. groups like this. Yeah, yeah, positive. Polite, persistent, and positive. <laughs> three, the three keys, keys of, of academic reach outs. You heard them here first. <laughs> yeah, we should patent it. But um, it sounds so cheesy and so stupid. But I mean, this is this is like really the advice I can give. And um, and yes, university groups in particular are rather responsive, and they're always usually looking for people to do postgraduate studies in. So I think this is not yeah not too difficult these days. Very cool. Uh, great answer there, and that ties into some other people's questions. So Sinchan Bhattacharya who's a principal data scientist, also asked, uh, what's the pathway to becoming an expert in quantum machine learning? And so I think you kind of, you answered that question. We had several people just ask for applications of quantum machine learning. So uh, Saad Jamshed um, asked for that, um, as well as John Hawkins. Um, so yeah, I think we've covered that already clearly in this episode. Um, Saurav Bakshi has a question uh, that is... I guess it kind of extends from that. And maybe we didn't answer this sufficiently when we were talking about uh, quantum machine learning use cases before. So Saurav asks, which use cases in quantum ML can be used by business right now? And I think we've answered that in this episode and that it's probably nothing right now. But what about in the future? Like, do you see mainstream uh, applications of quantum machine learning emerging in the coming years like where where might that be yeah this is a really really great question and i must kind of declare immediately that i've been feeling a little bit less optimistic about quantum machine learning um than in i, I kind of go through waves right i think most most researchers experience this they're like they're they're usually some ups and then some downs and i'm kind of on the on the downside right now because you know i think i've been trying to make and not just me, like a ton of people have been trying to make a lot of things work and we just can't seem to do it, right? But that doesn't mean that um, that the whole field is doom and gloom. Um, and in terms of business applications, I think, you know, people in business really don't really care if from a complexity theory point of view, we can't solve, you know, MP hard problems or whatever. They don't care, right? I mean, if, if a heuristic approach, something just like a, a try and see quantum algorithm works for some reason, even if we don't understand it theoretically, this is like gold, right? So, so I do think that there are use cases for quantum computing in fields like optimization, for example, where we can provide speed ups to problems that are practical and useful. We just have to find them. So, so we haven't we haven't found them yet. And and from a research perspective, this is super attractive, right? Because um, there there could be a lot of low hanging fruit for people. So I do think the field of of optimization is something that's naturally suited for for quantum computers to perhaps add speed ups to, or perhaps add new algorithms to. 
Um, in terms of machine learning, where we can see some advantages, I do think um, from a theoretical point of view, uh, going down this line of, of having quantum memory and stuff like that, exploring this a little bit more um, is something, something to look at. Um, but in actual fields, um, I don't know, you know, people often ask me because of my finance background, um, you know, can we, can we do things like, uh, I don't know, speed up the, the models that we have to price derivatives or something like this? Like, you know, personally, I don't think so. I don't think that quantum computers are going to add anything beneficial there. Um, I do think that they offer some basic speed ups under some very, very restrictive assumptions, but these don't hold in practice. So to be honest, I don't think finance is a, is a killer application yet. Uh, I hope to be proven wrong. I think maybe in healthcare, we'll see some interesting things because there there's a lot of chemistry and you know, material science. Chemistry is something that's very difficult. Um, interactions of particles and things like this are difficult to simulate naturally on a, on a classical computer. So maybe there, there's stuff we can, we can do and say. Um, and there's a whole field of quantum chemistry as well, which links a little bit to machine learning. That's super interesting. Um, so I think probably from a business point of view, that's that's where we'll see a lot of killer applications in the in the near term. And um, yeah, and in, I mentioned optimization, which of course ties into logistics. So maybe this is also something we can see some practical speed ups in. Very cool. So yeah, so you see the most fertile ground going forward in kind of healthcare applications because of uh, it seems like there's a lot of opportunity for quantum computing in chemistry and materials. Um, and then in addition in logistics and that's great. That's so crystal clear. Um, and it's, it's interesting. We have a question from, uh, one listener. So Doug McLean, he's a lead data scientist at Tesco bank, and he has probably the single longest, but also most wonderful question that's ever been asked when I do this, when I ask for audience questions. And I think there's probably, there's no point in me kind of reading it all, but we'll be sure to include a link to this post in the show notes if people want to dig into it. So Doug had an amazing question, but it's, it's all related to stochastic processes in derivative pricing. Um, and I don't think, I don't think he knew, I actually didn't mention in the post about your finance background. So he either looked kind of did some research on you separately, or it's a coincidence that like, yeah, this amazing question about uh, derivatives. Um, but it sounds like, yeah, you've, you've already kind of given the answer on uh, derivatives pricing and they're probably being relatively limited um, application areas there, at least the, the, so, so it appears right now. Um, so uh, this brings us to our last question asker, Jonathan Bound. So he's an ML ops engineer and um, he had three questions for you, some of which we've already covered. So one was on, um, you know, specific advantages of quantum machine learning relative to uh, classical machine learning. And his second question is great. I think this is a perfect next question for the podcast episode in general, which is if a listener wants to build a model using quantum algorithms or methodologies, what tools are practitioners using? So Jonathan is familiar with Qiskit, Q-I-S-K-I-T, and he's seen a few projects on Kaggle using it for model pipelines, but are there more um, machine learning specific tools out there for people interested in quantum uh, computing? 
Yeah, cool. This is um, this is such a nice question, and in fact, all of them have been. So thanks, thanks everybody for the questions. And um, indeed, there are machine learning, quantum machine learning pipelines. The ones that immediately come to mind and um, are my favorites is um, Penny Lane. So Penny Lane is um, a package released by the company that I mentioned earlier in Toronto, Xanadu, specifically structured for quantum machine learning, and I think it is. Super nice, really well documented, really easy to use, um, a lot of tutorials. And they also like do this wonderful thing where they they kind of take um, interesting new research that's published in the field of quantum machine learning and then add code to it. Um, they add like a whole t- Penny Lane like walkthrough. Um, so pennylane.ai, I think, is the website to go to. And it's really, really cool. It's really great for, for quantum machine learning. They even have a whole explainer walking you through what it means to um, do quantum machine learning, to encode data, how you can consider encoding it, how you can get labels out, how you can do certain machine learning pipelines and so on with, with a quantum computer. And you can also um, very naturally use their, their package to plug into actual quantum computers as well. So you can, um, you can plug into actual devices. So this is a super nice one. Um, Google also, so I should probably say Qiskit is um, IBM's open source framework, right? So, but Google also have one, and theirs is called TensorFlow Quantum. So, if you um, are familiar with TensorFlow, then you know you'll pick up TensorFlow Quantum like that. And they also have some really nice documentation, some explainers, and um, I think that uh, their their uh, machine learning stuff is is really nice. And they also have another quantum computing sort of framework called CIRQ, C-I-R-Q. Um, so CIRQ is also great. And and um, these two things, TensorFlow Quantum and CIRQ, go nicely hand in hand. So yeah, so I think these are these are some of them. There are some ad hoc other things, but I think if I were to start personally, I would start with Penny Lane. And then if Penny Lane is not um, not giving me what I want, I would then go and look at, you know, Qiskit and, um, and uh, TensorFlow Quantum and so on. Awesome, yeah. I remember... When I first started looking to do a quantum machine learning episode a couple of years ago, I remember coming across Penny Lane as well as being a particularly, I was really impressed by the, the thoroughness of the resources and the, the hands-on code demos. It seemed like a really cool resource. Um, awesome. And yeah, then Jonathan's very last question there. <laughs> it sounds like something we've already addressed now. Um, so he says, do you see quantum machine learning becoming as popular as something like open source large language models are right now? And I think, unfortunately, we've already kind of heard that at least on the, uh, the ebbs and flows um, <laughs> of your personal excitement about it, it seems like right now, maybe that's something that's hard to visualize. But I guess maybe like looking longer term and just with, you know, in 2012, or maybe even more appropriately in 2010, two years before Jeff Hinton and his team had uh, released AlexNet and demonstrated how powerful it was at deep learning, probably people working on neural network research were, you know, they wouldn't have imagined Mm -hmm. that in 2023, we'd be where we are today with crazy capabilities like we see in GPT-4 powered by these uh, large language models that that run on deep learning and you know <laughs> everybody in the world being excited about these applications and the fastest growing consumer applications so i um if there's hope yet <laughs> absolutely yeah i don't want to crush anybody's dreams if people are <laughs> if people are super excited about quantum machine learning you know you have the right to be like there's so much we don't know and that's part of the allure of the subject right but 
maybe my negativity or my pessimism, I should say, like kind of just comes from the fact that there's a lot of hype with nothing to back it up. And this is what I don't like. And so people must just be a little bit cognizant of the fact that, you know, there there aren't these blanket results that just say quantum computers are going to provide us with exponential advantages and so on, because it's far, far more subtle than that. And um, indeed, we can dream big and we can hope for and we can try and we can um, explore. And that's that's all wonderful. And that shouldn't be taken away from from you know this conversation today. Yes. And for people who want to dream and explore with you, they can do that. I understand upcoming at UCLA. Uh, so you will be one of the instructors for an in-person quantum machine learning course. Do you want to tell us more about that? Yeah, sure. So um, the Institute for for Pure Mathematics, I think it's called the IPAM, Pure and Applied Mathematics, I think is the acronym, um, at UCLA is hosting a, it's actually a month-long um, series of talks on on the theoretical aspects of, of quantum, um, quantum computing and quantum learning. But there's a particular week in there, um, the week of October 17th, where it will just be focused on quantum learning theory. So specifically like mathematical aspects of quantum machine learning and these kinds of things will come up as topics. So if people are interested, you know, you can can register for this and attend some of the talks. Um, I'll be teaching, a couple of other people will be teaching as well. We can make the links available. And um, yeah, I think it should be a great place to discuss research, to see what's going on, what some of the latest results from people in industry and uh, people in academia are, are doing. Fantastic. Well, after years of personal hype uh, for me about getting a quantum machine learning episode, you have exceeded my expectations. And this has been so awesome. I've learned so much on something that I knew so little about. And so I hope, I'm sure, actually, I don't need to say I hope, I'm sure our, our audience members learned a ton as well. Uh, Amir, thank you so much for taking the time today. Before I let you go, we always ask our guests for a book recommendation. What have you got for us? <laughs> okay, sure. I um, I should stop by saying I don't, this is a, very embarrassing, but I don't like read a lot of books outside of textbooks. So my recommendation is going to be a textbook, <laughs> just like a, like a teacher. No, um, but like I started, um, yeah, I started going down this rabbit hole of complexity theory. So I want to maybe give a shout out to one of the best books that I've come across so far. And um, it's called uh, Computational Complexity. Um, a modern approach, and it's by Barack and Aurora, who are really, really badass like complexity researchers. And in there, they cover kind of everything you need to know from a theoretical computer science point of view for classical and quantum. So it's really, um, it's really quite beautiful, and you don't really need much um, expertise. They kind of walk you through from the basics to the most advanced. So if you're interested in some of the stuff that I spoke about today, I think this. Uh, this textbook is like, oh, and I think there is a free copy available online if you just Google it, which also makes things a lot nicer. So, yeah. Brilliant. Uh, and then, yes, very, very last thing, Amira, is with all of the brilliant insights that you've been able to provide today, I'm sure a lot of people will want to know how to follow you after this episode and get your thoughts. Where should they do that? Yeah, sure. So um, I guess I'm probably most active on uh, Twitter and LinkedIn. Um, but if people are, you know, wanting to discuss like um, serious aspects from a research point of view, I'm also available. I think the best way to contact me is via email. Um, but yeah, I think probably Twitter and, and LinkedIn. Um, and I tend to share, I think, a lot of events and um, 
and papers and new research and stuff like this that uh, that are within the field of quantum machine learning on LinkedIn. So I think that's probably the, the best bet if you want that. If you want to chat, then uh, by email. Perfect. Yeah, we'll be sure to include links to Great. all of those options in the show notes. All right, Amira, thank you so much. And yeah, uh, hopefully we can check in again in a few years and hear that there's been amazing strides <laughs> made in quantum machine learning. And <laughs> uh, yeah, and it's all excitement and no hype. <laughs> yeah, I hope so. Thanks so much for having me. It's been great to chat. And yeah, we'll see how it goes. <laughs> How exceptionally gifted Amira was at identifying the most interesting paths to flow through our conversation. I was left feeling like this episode had a perfect arc to it from beginning to end. In today's episode, Amira filled us in on how qubits have probability amplitudes that are much more nuanced than classical computing's bits. This allows for more efficient computing for specific problems such as prime factorization problems, but quantum computers may need to be scaled up many orders of magnitude from where they are today in order to provide practical value for machine learning in the years to come. She filled us in on how quantum machine learning involves three distinct steps. The first is converting data into a quantum state. The second is evolving, that is performing operations. And the third one is converting the result into something interpretable, such as a vector of numbers. She told us how quantum support vector machines have been demonstrated to be more efficient than standard SVM, but the data used for these demos so far are too contrived to be likely to be observed in practice. And then she left us with the software libraries that she recommends checking out if you're just getting started with Quantum ML. Specifically, she recommended Penny Lane, IBM's Qiskit, um, or Quiskit, <laughs> I don't know how to pronounce that, uh, Q-I-S-K-I-T, um, Google's TF Quantum, and Google's CIRQ, C-I-R-Q. As always, you can get the links to all of those libraries, other materials mentioned on the show, um, all the show notes, including the transcript for this episode, the video recording, and the URLs for Amira's social media profiles, as well as my own, at superdatascience.com slash 721. Um, if you would like to interact with me beyond just the podcast or social media, coming up on November 8th, I'll be hosting a virtual half-day conference on building commercially successful LLM applications. It'll be interactive, practical, and it'll feature some of the most influential people in the large natural language model space as speakers. It'll be live in the O'Reilly platform, which many employers and universities provide you access to already. But if you don't already have access, you can get a free 30-day trial of the O'Reilly platform using our special code SDSPOD23. We've got a link to that code ready for you in the show notes. All right, thanks to my colleagues at Nebula for supporting me while I create content like this Super Data Science episode for you. And thanks, of course, to Ivana, Mario, Natalie, Serge, Sylvia, Zara, and Kirill on the amazing Super Data Science team, the Super Super Data Science team, for producing another mind-blowing episode for us today. You can support this show by checking out our sponsors' links, by sharing, by reviewing, by subscribing. But most of all, I hope you just keep on tuning in. I'm so grateful to have you listening, and I hope I can continue to make episodes you love for years and years to come. Until next time, my friend, keep on rocking it out there. And I'm looking forward to being over this cold and enjoying another round of the Super Data Science Podcast with you very soon. <laughs>